This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Metro Denver asked the wrong question when it set out to build rail service about a dozen years ago. That question was, how do you reduce road congestion? So what was the right question? Colin Woodward explores this for Politico in an article out today. The piece is actually called The Mile High Transit Miracle, and he's on the phone with us. And Colin, welcome to the program. A great pleasure. Thanks for having me. You write that no other metro area has managed to do what Denver has done, to have counties and cities cooperate, not compete, to build this system of light rail and commuter rail, and much of it opening this year. Uh, But first off, why isn't the right goal, the right question, uh, to reduce traffic? Well, this uh, the idea back when this was being planned uh, was that you would Build, uh, try to find a way in order to actually reduce congestion on highways. That was the specific sort of question and the way that it was brought forward to the public, which is a legitimate goal to have, but uh, it runs afoul of the what they now call the fundamental law of traffic congestion in traffic circles. It was uh, coined back in 1962, and the notion is that, that new capacity on highways is always met by a proportional increase in driving because drivers say, hey, look, you can now drive on this road. I'm going to take my car there and start adding trips. So that in essence, trying to stop congestion through many, many different types of efforts is a bit of a fool's errand. Mm. That the correct question is something rather different. And when you have that question in mind, which I think uh, RCD and, and planners all over the country now do, you know, some, some decades later, uh, you end up uh, deciding to do different sort of things and where you place stations and how you design your network. And what is the, the better question? The better question uh, transport experts were telling me is that you know, how do you get people where access to where they need to go and where they want to go? That's a different question than how do I reduce congestion on such and such a highway? Because uh, this uh, leads you to start thinking about where would people need to go and get to? And one of the things that people are discovering and that the experience of Denver has been an excellent case study in, is that what the, the really amazing advantage of a rail transit system is that it creates dots on the map, so to speak, in its stations that naturally encourage and catalyze a change in land use around it. It prompts the uh, creation of often denser and walkable neighborhoods, especially if done right, uh, that are less reliant on automotive transport to begin with and start uh, channeling and encouraging a different type of development that uh, one of the advantages is that it uh, requires people to use those highways a bit less as well. But it's a very different set of questions, and to maximize that, various transportation experts told me, um, you uh, have to have that in mind as you're building the system so that you can create the stations in the right way and locations, which is now being done uh, you know, by RTD as well. But back in the you know, early 90s when the system began, this wasn't quite uh, part of everyone's consciousness to the same degree. Well, this is fascinating because what you're getting at is uh, Metro Denver built an alternative public transportation system that presumably was about uh, getting people out of their cars, and yet it still fundamentally had the car in mind. Yeah, the car was front and center in the conversation, whereas it, it actually, if you think about it, didn't need to be. If you ask that other question, how do you get people to what they they need in their lives and want to get to, you may not have the car in the conversation at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be that you build stations in places 
where people are going to end up essentially using rail transport and, you know, bicycles and walk to a lot of the things they need. So that opens up a totally different set of questions. And it's not so much that one is fault, fault, you know, faulting RTD in Denver for not realizing this back in, you know, the early 90s. Uh, it's that your system is an amazing case study because it was being built and then aggressively built during this era when this was being realized of how one realizes those lessons and starts capturing them by doing it. And in a sense, uh, the story in Denver is a story of a discovery of this and a realization and actually starting to take advantage of it. And for us and our readers across the country, that's especially interesting because it's offering lessons to people who are in cities that are still contemplating doing what you've done that will allow them to avoid, uh, you know, or, or to take advantage of uh, the potential of their system uh, without uh, perhaps going down uh, a path that uh, lost some of the potential advantages. Yeah, let's talk about those, some of the potential advantages had Metro Denver asked a different question. I think of, for instance, the light rails E-line, which essentially hugs the route of I-25 from the city center to the Denver Tech Center. That was obviously planned with the highway in mind, since it hugs so closely. Are you saying that lines might have been to different, not necessarily two different places, but following different routes then? Yes. I mean, the the logic, if you're trying to reduce congestion and get people from the same A to B as that highway, as I-25, you're trying to get commuters down to their jobs uh, south of the city who may live above the city. And of course, the logical and correct thing to do would be to build it right along the highway. And oftentimes, uh, both the incentives of federal grants and the incentives of trying to find for the public the least expensive you know, access and land acquisition to do that, going right along the medians of highways can make a lot of sense. Right. But if you're asking that other question, suddenly maybe that doesn't make as much sense because if you strand a station, say, in between the two lanes of a, of a multi-lane highway and you have maybe tunnels or overpasses to get pedestrians there and you build a park and ride around it, um, that's exactly the thing that's not going to be conducive to that kind of uh, accretion of... Uh, of a walkable neighborhood and expensive, you know, real estate developments down the road. Mm. So it's sort of, uh, without having that other idea in mind, you may have lost some potential advantages in the calculation of where you would build the stations. I think there are people who live, for instance, in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood or Congress Park or City Park who say light rail doesn't come very close to us at all. And uh, perhaps you're saying if a different question had been asked, uh, different neighborhoods might be a part of this. Uh, And yet, uh, despite uh, those critiques, criticisms, you say that the Fast Tracks build-out has been a miracle. That's a strong word. Why do you use it? <laughs> it's been a pretty amazing thing because, uh, you know, the, the, the missteps are more learning things along the way. But the broad picture, when you step back and look at it, that a city that is fast growing and has continued to be fast growing, essentially decided that over a, uh, uh, you know, a decade and a half, we're going to build an entire region-wide rail transit system uh, and, you know, that's going to extend out and knit the entire metro region together and that the counties and municipalities all involved uh, ended up getting behind it. And it's an enormously expensive and difficult project at a time when federal and public dollars are not easier to get than they were in the past. And despite twists and turns and complications, most of it has actually happened and more or less on time. And that's a pretty impressive thing in and of itself. 
More or less on time, there's obviously some uh, displeasure with the build-out of light rail in particular to Boulder County, uh, for instance. Correct. Uh, let, let's go back to one assertion that you made, that this, this rule coined in 1962, that uh, essentially if you relieve congestion on highways, more cars will come to fill it. Um, that fundamental rule, you say, remains true and begs the question, if along I-25, for instance, congestion's any better because of the build-out that Metro Denver has done of light rail? Well, I think your listeners will be able to better judge that than I can, uh. <laughs> but I, I gather from people that uh, this congestion is still a problem that, that plagues people despite the existence of right rail and the, exp- the right, light rail and the expansion of highways. So that may play into the fundamental law, which uh, further studies by transportation experts continue to confirm that, in fact, that is what happens when you look at driving miles and the like, that, you know, the, the adage that you can't build your way out of highway congestion does seem to be true, especially in places where uh, the metro region is growing quickly over the long term. I'll say that the folks at Dr. Cog, that's the Denver Regional Council of Governments, which represents this you know, cooperation of communities, has said, sure, there's congestion, but it would be much worse had the system not been built out. Colin, thanks for being with us. Thanks much. Reporter Colin Woodard's story is out today in Politico called The Mile High Mass Transit Miracle. We got something of a sneak peek and we'll have a link to it later today at cprnews.org. Coming up, a man who believes Metro Denver needs more rail service even than fast tracks envisioned. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the break, we got a somewhat rosy take on RTD's expansion of rail service in Metro Denver. Of course, not everyone is happy, like residents of Longmont and Boulder, who were taxed but won't see a train possibly for decades. We reported on that just recently, and many of you shared your feedback. And one idea you told us about in that feedback would bring rail to cities across the state, not just Metro Denver. Bob Briggs leads Colorado Rail Now. That's the name of this campaign. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Your idea relies essentially on a swap. So most of the freight traffic that now goes through Front Range cities, you would have moved to the Eastern Plains. And and that would then free these rail corridors in the cities for passenger service. Just briefly, where do you see trains going carrying passengers that they don't now in Colorado? Well, the existing tracks that were put in in the 1870s, 1890s, and in 1900, 116 years ago, every county in our great state had rail service. Today, that doesn't exist because of the change in railroad policy that uh, took place in 1965. So the rail that is there today serves the main downtowns, because in the 1870s when they went in, they had a rail stop every 10 miles because that's how far you could go between getting water. And so that's why you have a, a, a town every 10 miles but on, on those tracks. Obviously, communities and technology has changed since then. And so where would you like to see major passenger service? Well, what, what you would do is use those existing tracks 
and and they go all the way from Calgary to El Paso, the same Burlington Northern Runs tracks that length. You would take over those tracks, and on those tracks, you would put passenger rail, commuter rail, and local freight, which you currently could not do. And that the reason you can't do that today is because the freight companies, the Burlington Northerns and the Union Pacifics, have this transportation of freight that they're doing that needs to be moved and find a new line and a new location for it. And once that happens, then you can use those existing tracks. And so and your idea what, yeah, is to move those to, to, to the plains. And so you would have passenger rail service essentially from as far north as Fort Collins down to as far south yeah. as Pueblo. And then eventually, uh, what about east-west across the mountains? Is that what this plan envisions? Yes. The, the bottleneck that you have east-west is uh, uh, in the mountains is Moffat Tunnel. Moffat Tunnel today can only – move 22 trains a day through its tunnel, and it needs to be remodeled. It was engineered in 1903 and hasn't been changed, and it needs to be remodeled. Let me give listeners some context here. So you're a former RTD board member. That's correct. You also represented Jefferson County in the State House. That's correct. Sat on the Westminster City Council. That's correct. You have supporters in this effort who've also been in local leadership. Have you brought these ideas to those official channels? And, and what kind of reception have you gotten? Because I think, I think anyone listening is thinking this is ambitious. <laughs> well, the, the great news about this project is you can't do it. It's like DIA. When DIA was built, it had to be done all at one time. When this project happens, you have to move the freight, and you got to do that project all at one time. And then once it frees up the the tracks on the front range, you can't. We've gotten support up and down the front range. I've spoken to most communities up and down the front range about the idea. And and the interesting thing you mentioned about going in the mountains, one of the things I heard consistently in making those presentations is we still have to have access to the mountains because that's why we moved here. And so that's why eventually you would like to to have an east-west line. Yes. Uh, well, the, the line exists. It's just a matter of doing some remodeling on it to allow passenger service. What need does this fill? Well, you your previous caller talked about the decision on locating lines. The, those decisions that we are using from an RTD standpoint and, and – what we're using today was made in the 1870s when the original lines went in. And and so we're using those. Generally, the, the communities grew up around those lines. And so where those lines are located at today are are the existing uh, lines. The people And, and what, what is the need? Yeah, what is the need this is filling? Well, when we built T-Rex, we did... Ten lanes of interstate for 20 miles. This is a long I-25. A long I-25. And we put in two lines of light rail. Okay, the two lines of light rail will handle ten times the amount of traffic uh, as the ten lanes of interstate. Now, that's what the need is. The, it, it gives you the opportunity. Rail is the only transportation system that gives you the opportunity as your population grows to expand service by using a different technology, 
using longer trains, using many things so you can move more people. And more people are coming, as we know. Let's talk cost after a break and continue this discussion about Colorado Rail Now, an ambitious plan that would expand rail service all along the Front Range and uh, across the Continental Divide as well. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and in this part of the program, we are getting a picture of Colorado Rail Now, a campaign led by Bob Briggs, former RTD board member. He's also a former state house representative from Jefferson County and a former member of the Westminster City Council. And he envisions an expansion of rail service across the state. Uh, This is a three-step process as you see it. First, moving a lot of freight rail traffic out of Metro Denver by building new tracks on the eastern plains that could uh, move freight then that doesn't have to stop in the cities. And uh, then putting in more passenger service along the Front Range and eventually building out rail lines to the mountains and the West Slope. This is obviously very expensive. You imagine somewhere around $18 billion. And until now, you thought that this might be publicly funded, but you're changing your tune a bit and thinking that that, uh, private funding might be a better avenue for this. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, In Chicago, they have a similar issue going through the the great city of Chicago. And they decided to build a 270-mile bypass and and finance it privately. And and so they're in the process of doing that. And and so what we've done after studying their proposal have decided to do a similar type of thing on our 240-mile bypass out on the Eastern Plains from Sterling to Los Animas. And what kind of investor would be interested and how soon could they turn a profit on such a massive investment? Well, there are countries and companies around the world that want to invest in United States infrastructure, rail or highways. I mean, we've got many examples of that kind of company investing in our highways. Highway 36, the reconstruction is a similar type of thing. This is often known as a public-private partnership. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the type of companies that are out there that can do things like this and write the big check. Is this a quixotic adventure for you? Do you think this is realistic? I mean, you look, for instance, even at at the revival of the ski train and the troubles that it has run into, and you you think, gosh, uh, rail service has not fared well in the United States. Well, where I come from, and I've studied it for basically the the 17 years since I run for the RTD board, we have to solve first because the property is owned by our friends at Burlington Northern Santa Fe and Union Pacific. Yeah, how do they feel about moving well, to the, to the they, plains? They will only move if you can offer them a better solution without them having to invest in it. And that's what this does. By moving the freight to the eastern plains, yes. you say that this actually makes the movement of freight faster. But to the fundamental question, is is this realistic or is this well, pie in the sky? I can I I can tell you I got friends on both sides of that aisle. <laughs> the bottom line is it's like when the decision was made to build DIA over and above Stapleton, you know, 
close down Stapleton and put DIA in. The question was, was it pie and sky? The, if you look back 15 years later, you say, no, that wasn't a pie in the sky. It worked. The same will be true here. Once you get it done and put the the commuter rail in the front range, put the freight out on the onto the to the planes, you'll find that the freight service right now there's no capacity for them. They need and the reason they would be in favor of doing that in July of this year a new Panama Canal will open. That will put more containers coming into Texas, and that will increase the demand on north-south rail. And and they have no capacity now, and they will have if you build that. And so that's why they will be in favor of it, and that's why it works. Just briefly before we go, Bob, what's motivating you to spend your time and money? This is more than a decade, I think, in investments doing this. Well, that's a good question. Colorado is on its way to 18 million people by 2100, right? If if somebody doesn't lead the charge to put a rail infrastructure back in place, we'll be in a world of hurt. I know under our current financing, we can't do this. And so we have to do it some other way. We, you know, and so that's why I continue to do it. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it because... It's best for Colorado. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Bob Briggs of Westminster leads Colorado Rail Now. There's a link to his plan if you'd like more specifics at cprnews.org. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado just became the first state to create a public lands day, recognizing the value of some 24 million acres here that are owned by the federal government. On Tuesday, the governor signed the bill creating the holiday. Peter Marcus covers the legislature for the Durango Herald. He told CPR's Mike Lamp about the rocky journey of what was supposed to be an uncontentious bill. The bill was introduced actually on the very first day of the legislative session and didn't make its way out until the very end of the legislative session. And the reason why is because there's a lot of controversy that is swirling around just the issue of public lands. And so that controversy kind of spilled over into the legislature where what was a seemingly, you know, non-controversial bill to create a public land day was bogged down in all of this discussion on whether or not the federal government is truly the best to regulate our public lands. Can you kind of summarize the different opinions that were going around there in the legislature? What happened is as the bill was debated and went through various different committee hearings, it kept getting amended. And so in the Republican-controlled Senate, it was amended from that simple, let's just celebrate a public lands day to let's state our grievances with the federal government, in which um, the federal government, you know, uses all of these burdensome regulations to kind of like force people into a by a system that they don't need to because they would be just fine on their own as farmers and ranchers managing the land, taking care of things on their own. Their feeling is that they don't need this overregulation. On the other side, what happened was a lot of the conservation community, um, environmental groups, things like that, came forward and said, we can't transfer over millions of acres of federal land to the state's authority. The state doesn't have the money to manage it. The state won't have the 
any resources really to deal with this. And what their fear is that those lands would close. And then sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, they wouldn't be able to utilize those lands anymore. So it became a fight over ideology, really. Then uh, somehow, as it can sometimes happen in the legislature, they reach a compromise. There were compromises throughout the process in the Republican-controlled Senate. They struck that language to a compromise that just said, well, maybe the federal government should do a little more. And then when it got into the Democratic-controlled House, that still went too far. And so the Democrats stripped that out. They amended it to say what we should be doing is actually working with our federal partners in a cooperative kind of setting. It actually went to what we call a conference committee. It's when the House and the Senate can't agree. It goes to this conference committee with members from both chambers. They ended up just realizing that all we have to do is strip it down to what it was, which is a public lands day for all of Colorado to enjoy. And sure enough, they did that and it passed. So in the end, it was something both Republicans and Democrats could get behind. And after all of this back and forth, uh, the result is a bill and a law that is pretty symbolic. It celebrates public lands in Colorado, but it doesn't have any legal impact. No, exactly. This isn't a bill with teeth. You know, it's it's a symbolic gesture to show Coloradans' dedication to the outdoors. And there are some kind of practical elements to it in the sense that, you know, our tourism industry is a big moneymaker, uh, the hunting industry, sports industry, you know, big moneymakers. So by showing the value of this day, the hope is that it also helps drive more people to the state and increases those industries. A lot of this conversation in in the Colorado legislature was taking place at around the same time, a little bit after this occupation of a wildlife refuge in Oregon by people who have a very strong objection to federal management of public lands. This wasn't just a standoff. I mean, it was militant. And so you had that tension, that volatility that spilled over into the legislature literally as they were debating it. People weren't saying, well, this is a bill about this standoff. But it was just the fact that this was hanging over it and overshadowing it is what I believe held the process up for so long. So uh, the first Colorado Public Lands Day is next May. What do you think is going to happen uh, on that day? Well, I plan on playing hooky and going okay. and going up on the mountain or something like that. No, uh, I. who knows? You know, I mean, like we said, it's a symbolic piece of legislation. You know, I don't think that employers are going to suddenly say, oh, well, it's the third Saturday of May. Obviously, everybody take off and go hiking. Although it depends. I mean, if the state were to, you know, somehow like tout it as a statewide kind of holiday kind of thing, it might generate some attention. But I don't necessarily see this exactly changing the the great direction of the state or anything like that. Peter Marcus, Statehouse reporter for the Durango Herald, speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp. Colorado's Public Lands Day is the third Saturday in May, starting next year. And that's Colorado Matters for today. We are grateful for your support and for your feedback. There are any number of ways to give it to us at Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook, or email through the website, cprnews.org. 